Hey everyone, I'm Lee Jin here along with Nathan Bachez, and this is Means of Creation, a show where we deep dive into the passion economy and the future of work. This show is made by Every, a writer's collective focused on business. And recently, we've been writing a lot about platforms and how they exercise outsized control over their participants, whether that's content creators on social media platforms or app developers on Apple and Google or rideshare drivers in the gig economy. And we've been exploring how this can be changed for the better, how platform participants can be made into stakeholders and potentially even shareholders of these businesses, bridging the gap between labor and capital. Our guest today, Jason Prado, is someone who has been on the forefront of that effort. He's currently the head of product for the Drivers Cooperative, which is a driver-owned ride-sharing platform based in New York City. Before this, he had a long career in technology in Silicon Valley um, and was previously an engineering manager at Facebook. And right now, the Drivers Cooperative is a worker-owned alternative to platforms like Uber and Lyft and give drivers control over all the decisions and product roadmap of the app itself. So in this conversation today, we'll talk about how he became interested in cooperatives, alternative ways of organizing and structuring companies such that they can better enfranchise workers' voices, and potentially how Web3 could also help to solve these challenges. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. In our very first conversation with each other, it just struck me that you were one of the most interesting like independent thinkers that I have ever come across in the tech world. I would love for you to just sort of describe your idea maze for how you got to where you are today, especially since you have a relatively traditional big tech background, having worked at Facebook on all of these different social media products. How did that lead you to where you are today? In a lot of ways, like you said, I have this traditional tech background. I moved to California when I was 18 to go to Stanford and study computer science, like a lot of people who end up in the tech industry. After that, I worked at big companies for the most part, like Microsoft and Google, but had started a startup of my own that was fairly small some time ago. Ended up at Facebook, which is a place I really enjoyed working for a good seven and a half years or so. However, over the the seven or eight years I worked there, I changed and the company changed and, and the world changed quite a bit. I started there, I think, in 2012. And then, you know, the 2016 election happened. And a lot of things seem to change very quickly for, for me, at least, that culminated in me like leaving at 2020 to go find something else to do. So I guess what really changed there was after the election, I had... I came to realize that I maybe had some some ideas that were wrong or that had led me astray. After graduating from college and being the first person in my family to graduate from college and go directly into a professional career, I really thought that the Californians had it all figured out, that like Silicon Valley had like the right ideas about everything. And uh, it was just a matter of uh, these really brilliant thinkers scaling their their solutions to the whole world. And like Google was going to save the world through giving everyone access to the world's information. So I, I bought it as much as anyone in Silicon Valley really does. But, you know, I guess I always knew that there was a maybe something not fully right, like living in San Francisco, walking outside and seeing the problems on the street in San Francisco with massive wealth inequality and uh, the homelessness problems here. I thought maybe there's something like not perfect, but still mostly things were getting better all the time and really bought the what's known as the Californian ideology. The election changed that for me, for sure. Like I kind of mm-hmm. woke up the next day and everyone was saying, oh, there's a fascist in the White House. We better start doing this resistance thing. Uh, and I took that fairly seriously. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe things are pretty wrong in this country. And then just a few weeks later, I look in the newspaper and there's a photo of like my boss, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are sitting there at, with the other tech CEOs having this nice uh, meeting with Trump. 
So either he's a fascist and this is a threat to democracy, or he's a business partner that we can negotiate with, but it doesn't seem like both of those can be true. Mm -hmm. uh, so that started this idea that maybe maybe we have different interests. Maybe what the CEO wants and what's good for them is, is different than what's good for me, who is just a, a worker. So that really set me down this path that led to understanding, you know, in a class society, people have different interests based on their position in, in society. And mine are probably pretty different than these, these CEOs. And that led me into the labor movement. I started meeting with other tech workers who were kind of going through the same phase shift in 2016 and 2017. Uh, so we started learning about the history of the labor movement in America and the potential for labor and labor organizing to affect political change. Uh, so we did a lot of education and reading groups to learn about this, this tradition that it turns out we were a part of and didn't even really know about. Uh, so we'd meet at a union hall at Unite Here in San Francisco. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, so we got to know some union organizers through that process. And one day, a few months into this, a union organizer pulled me aside and said, you know, we, we organize hospitality workers and service industry workers. We're setting our sights on the tech industry, where thousands and thousands of service industry workers work. In fact, most people on a tech campus, of course, are not engineers. Most of them aren't even employees at this point. So this union was organizing cafeteria workers at Facebook, but the campaign was, was underground at that point. But they asked for my support as a full-time employee. Um, so I jumped on that campaign and learned a lot about labor organizing. It was such a good education over the, the year, year and a half I was involved with that campaign. Uh, as, the, as it went from this underground campaign to build a committee to organize these 600 workers to um, going public and winning majority, then winning a contract, winning a really industry-defining contract. So basically, uh, the service workers on any tech campus aren't actually employees. They're employees of this like kind of fake HR front group that mm -hmm. serves the their corporate clients, but they don't have access to the, the cool benefits you always read about in tech. They don't even really have health insurance usually. So as I learned more and more about that, I would do things like go to workers' houses, like with another worker, another organizer, and tell them about the union and tell them, like, I, a software engineer, the people you serve food for every day, uh, support you and think you deserve better. And if you stand up and demand more, then, like, I have your back. Like, I'm, I'm on your side here. And uh, in doing that, I also organized other full-time workers like me to do solidarity work in that look like, you know, sitting down to round tables with uh, other kinds of workers and just like hearing each other's stories and, and making it really clear that if it came down to say, like the worst case, like service workers walk out on a strike, like full-time workers like me aren't going to be mad at the service workers because we don't have lunch. We're going to be mad at the bosses for not paying them enough. Right. So yeah, I, it, I started to understand how much I had more in common with the people who serve lunch every day than I did with uh, the people who sat down with Trump. And uh, I did that for a few more years, but eventually it just became a little bit too much to, to keep in my head at once that I was doing my job and trying to excel in my career for Facebook while also you know, having more and more problems with their practices on the ground and just like very basic labor things. Like, can they even take care of the people who, who like work on the campus? And then scaling that up to, can they solve the global challenges for the, the problems we've caused of misinformation and being this very powerful platform in a modern democracy and all the complexity that entails. So, um, I eventually decide to leave in 2020. That's such a whirlwind story. And <laughs> it leaves me with a bajillion questions. <laughs> I first want to probe into the fact that you said that you felt like you had more in common with the people who served you lunch than the owners of the platform, which is a really interesting statement to make, because I think in the tech world, one would be easily led to believe that tech as an industry is probably on the forefront of uniting labor and capital because of the granting of employee stock options and making every employee kind of like an owner of what they're building. Do you think that's insufficient or 
Yeah, I, I want to explore that a bit more because I, I think the roots of the employee stock option plan and that whole notion was to decrease the probability of work, workers unionizing and organizing together because they would feel like they had skin. Totally. And I don't think that's like a complete facade. I don't think that's a malicious trick to like trick workers into not understanding their class interests. But I do think it's it's quite insufficient. Like I, I really liked working on Facebook compared to anywhere else because it felt the least hierarchical of any place I'd worked. It felt like the intelligence and, and a lot of the power actually did rest at the leaves of the organization. However, there are just really hard limits on that, right? And, and anyone who cares deeply about product and product design will have run into these before. Um, you know, at Facebook, it's really easy to add another red alert icon to a feature in the app to get people to, to click on it. And then once you've done that, like you have these metrics and your metrics have been boosted and the product uh, experiences maybe been degraded a little bit, but, uh, you know, the metrics say it's good, so you can't unship it. You know, that kind of decision making is is happening all the time where like the, the user experience or like kind of the how much good we do in the world is being weighed against almost as good for the metrics that we've decided best uh, approximate the bottom line. And so I think you're always going to be limited by the structural issues. And the structural issues are that it's a for-profit company that needs to make more, more billions this year than it did last year. Right. And um, you can fight that some at the edges, but uh, and you can do good work while doing that. You can add value to people's lives. But at the end of the day, it's run by those people in the room with Trump, not, not the users. And the users have, the only voice they have is through this, like, design process, which I've written a bit about, where instead of democracy, instead of empowerment for for users and, and normal people, we have, you know, teams of researchers that do a great job of understanding what it, a use, what is good for a user and what they want, and then bring that to product organizations that then balance that against the needs of the business. And that's the way that these platforms do add a lot of value and do this interesting work for the world. But then the limit of that is, well, if it ends up being bad for the bottom line or any of these these metrics that approximate the bottom line, it's not going to fly. And there's nothing, you you know, you all the workers together don't own enough shares to vote differently there, even if we did organize as shareholders instead of workers. But right. what workers do have that is kind of uniquely valuable is their labor. There's another thing that you brought up in your story, which I would love to ask you about as well, which is the history of the labor movement, which is a topic that I'm obsessed with and, and fascinates me as well. I think the history of the labor movement and how workers have made a lot of progress in getting more rights for themselves has been through collective action and bargaining and organizing together. Mm-hmm. However, in today's platform world, in which work is mediated by a platform and workers are fragmented, atomized, disconnected from each other, unable to actually coordinate and to be able to communicate with each other let alone they might not even know who the other workers are on the platform. What do you think the modern form of collective action looks like? Or how can we reach a sufficient threshold of workers unionizing to be able to affect any change and to have any leverage over the platforms? That's a tough one. Um, I don't have any easy answers there because that's that's really is the essential problem. The real innovations of, of like gig work aren't the apps and the like the GPS chip in your phone that's been there for a few decades. The innovations are <coughs> the, bus- the business model and the employment model and how it shifts um, 
management from like something that happens on the shop floor to something that happens algorithmically, how it shifts, um, you know, the workplace from some place, a place that people get to know each other and form bonds. Uh, and then that turns into solidarity to, yeah, like you say, fully atomized workforces. One anecdote that comes to mind is um, I know some people who have been organizing delivery riders uh, in Europe, food, food delivery workers for, for several years. And um, in some cities that goes well, in some cities it doesn't. In some cities they manage to make some collective demands, even if it doesn't look exactly like a union and, and win mm-hmm. some power. And in some cities it really hasn't gone anywhere. Um, one of the biggest determinants for that is whether there are um, these areas known as hub zones uh, in those cities. So there are places, I think London is ex- an example of this, where like between deliveries, all the people riding for delivery on little uh, motorbikes kind of gather in these couple of spots around the city while waiting. And there might be some services there or something, or that's just a, a place that is easy for them to gather and get to know each other. In those places, they add each other to WhatsApp groups and they uh, get to know each other. And then when the order comes down that they're going to do a roving picket or a strike or something, they have the, the networks there. In places where that there hasn't been that opportunity, then, well, they're less successful at organizing. So, you know, there's no shortcuts, as we like to say. Uh, so it's going to take actually getting to know each other and, you know, standing in solidarity with each other to do that. Yeah. So like it's, we're not going to have an app that solves labor organizing or something like that. We're just going to have uh, the effort that it takes to build networks that can later do actions in solidarity. And, you know, WhatsApp is maybe a better organizing tool than any, any like, you know, WhatsApp and Airtable might be all you need to, to organize a, a union in like the 21st century. Um, it just needs to, to scale larger and larger. Well, and the interesting question it raises is organizing in order to do actions that increase the probability of reforms of some existing system, like an Uber or a Lyft, or there's creating entirely new systems from the ground up, which is maybe a good segue into the driver's cooperative. I would love to uh, hear more about like kind of the origin of that, how you got involved in it. And how it connects to like, you know, some of the problems you're observing when you're at Facebook. Yeah, I mean, the, the labor movement is going to be a, a vital part of any reforms. Like, because the power that we have is, is normal people who work for a living is is in the workplace. It's, it's not just us uh, marching in the streets. It's not just us at the ballot box. It's that, you know, the system doesn't work if we don't go to work tomorrow. So we're going to need to keep organizing as workers. And there's lots of ways that can can look, that can look like a union, that can look like militant action in the workplace. But also as a technologist, I think my role might be part, uh, in building alternatives that embody this ethos from from, gro- from the ground up. So cooperatives are one way that might look. And I, I've tried to find my, my role in the struggle basically over the past several years. And, and through that, I've joined the Democratic Socialists of America and like I've organized through their campaigns. Uh, when I left Facebook, I went to Washington, D.C. for six weeks and worked for the Bernie campaign uh, in the, the last days of the campaign to try and um, upgrade their data operations. And then I took some time off to learn about other paths and found the cooperative economy. And the idea of the, you know, of joining a cooperative is that I'd be building a you know, alternative that has the right ideas from the ground up is maybe structurally set up to, to put ownership in the right place. So the way I found the cooperative is um, the new school teaches this class online on platform cooperativism, which I imagine is something I've talked about on this podcast before. But oh, oh wow. platform cooperatives are basically platforms that are owned and operated by the users themselves. Exactly. Yeah. What if Facebook, but it's owned by the users or what if yeah. Uber is mm-hmm. owned by the drivers? So uh, that seems like pretty universally like a good idea. Democracy, if you believe democracy is for the most part a good idea, then, then platform cooperativism seems like a good idea. 
I would say it's kind of a fairly academic idea at the moment. Um, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of practitioners out there really scaling. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the point of this this class that, that the new school teaches twice a year uh, in collaboration with Mondragon, which is the world's largest mm-hmm. uh, worker cooperative in Spain, it's like 55,000 worker owner employees. So they teach this class on platform co-ops and they're trying to build a community of people who are actually putting these ideas into practice. And through that community, I found start.coop, which is a, um, a startup accelerator fund with a focus on investing in cooperatives. So I became an investor through start.coop and um, one of the portfolio companies going through the accelerator was the driver's cooperative. So I started talking with one of the founders there and um, she pulled me aside one day at a kind of mixer for investors. And um, I was like, oh, we have some questions about technology. Do you want to do you want to like weigh in for a bit? So I started talking to them and it became clear they had a lot of questions about technology. Something I found interesting about the cooperative is they have um, three co-founders and none of them are technologists. They have somebody from the labor movement. They have somebody who's been driving for decades and they have somebody who was a GM at Uber. What they don't have is a guy with an app who's saying, I'm going to solve all your problems with technology. What they have is a bunch of like thousands of drivers who organize themselves looking for an alternative to Uber in New York City and um, needed help building the technology to do that. And I found this kind of enticing. And I'd been kind of working on this, this thesis that maybe we have it backwards in Silicon Valley a lot, where, I don't know, you saw this after the election a lot, right? A lot of prominent technologists would swoop in and think, I'm going to build the thing that saves democracy, the, the communication platform or the ad campaign or whatever that, that makes people realize that democracy good, Trump bad or whatever. And they got bored after a few months and now they haven't really amounted to much, I would say, because it was really like you would never do that with a business, right? You would never think like, I'm just going to swoop in, solve this business problem. I don't need to get really, really immersed in it. I'm just kind of so smart and my tech is so good that I'm just going to solve the problems. Like no one, would, no one would take you seriously if you did that. But for some reason in like impact or whatever, that is that is like right. the norm. So I was like, okay, well, if we flip that on our on its head and just find, instead of putting the cart before the horse, find the workers who have the problems and then go help them solve those problems. I'm, I'm really curious to hear like, kind of some of the, just the basics of how it works for people listening. I think we all understand the basic mechanism of like an Uber or a Lyft where there's an app, you press a button, you get a ride, it works all over the world or mostly in the US, like most, you know, most cities of any sort of sufficient size. What's like the vision for where the driver's collective is going to be and where is it now? And what are the kind of like key structural ways that it's, that it's different both from a user facing perspective, maybe, and, and also from stuff that maybe users don't experience when they're when they're getting a ride. Yeah, so the cooperative is very small right now. We launched uh, two, two and a half months ago. We've done thousands of rides since then and onboarded thousands of drivers and tens of thousands of, of riders, but very, very early days. Like we just hired our first engineer besides me yesterday. So it's it's super early. I mean, the experience for a rider feels pretty similar to, to another rideshare service, and that's, that's by design. Yeah. Um, there's a bit more transparency which is nice. Like we make it clear what the cut the driver gets and what cut the cooperative gets. And then the experience of the driver is going to start looking a little bit different. You know, one thing that's surprised me going into this industry is that, well, for one thing, um, most of the drivers in New York City are professional. Like it's a very established industry there. Um, licensing is fairly expensive and complex there. So like there are fewer just casual, like I drive on weekends as a student drivers. It's mostly professional drivers who mm-hmm. take their job very seriously, have been doing it for a long time. These drivers are still 
surprisingly worried about the uh, problem of being deactivated on Uber. You know, their entire livelihood rests on these one or two platforms. If they have a problem, like there's a perception that if you have a really bad day, you get three or four just bad or malicious riders in a row or just have really bad luck, uh, you can get deactivated and there's no recourse. You can't really talk to a human. Any human you do mm-hmm. talk to is just another contractor. It's it's like literally impossible to talk to an employee of Uber. So they're always like just living with this risk, even though, I like I said, they're exceptional at their jobs. So one you know big difference for us is all of our policies are set by a driver board and that's a board of volunteers um, and people elected from from the driver base to uh, set policies like pricing and and how we deal with issues that come up operating the platform so uh, drivers can like volunteer for these boards we have other boards like the product committee where they check in on our roadmap and and help weigh in on product decisions because they're the users of the platform as well as the, the actual board of directors is selected from the owners who are the membership which is is mostly drivers so there's just a lot more self-governance involved in the game cooperative than the complete lack of governance in like one of the gig gig platforms. What about the economics, Jason? Because I think a lot of people believe that cooperatives just aren't as profitable or like are unable to sustain themselves to the same extent as like a venture backed or a traditional corporation. Can you talk through the economics of the driver's co-op and whether there's any take rate and how that intersects with the idea that it's owned by the driver's? So the of every ride, 15% goes to the cooperative and 85% passes through to the drivers um, after things like stripe fees and tolls. So uh, with that 15%, we pay the staff, we um, operate the cooperative, work on marketing and growth. So in a, in a normal corporation, in a capitalist corporation, you would call it um, profit and dividends. In the cooperative world, we have the same thing, but we call it surplus and patronage. So the surplus is the revenue we have at the end of the year that didn't get spent. Patronage is a system through which we pay out these dividends. And instead of dividends being paid out along terms of ownership shares and how much do you pay in, patronage in a cooperative is usually paid out in some more egalitarian way. So like the grocery cooperative down the street from you, it's probably the surplus is allocated to you based on the number of hours you worked divided by the number of hours everyone worked. And that's your share of the the surplus. Mm -hmm. Uh, For us, it'll be like, you know, you get a point for doing rides, you get points for doing this. So if we when we have surplus, it'll be allocated to drivers. The other side of the finance is, well, the reality is it's harder to grow fast as a cooperative. Like you can't do like the blitz scaling thing, like the assumption and mm-hmm. in, in like modern monopoly driven platforms that are venture backed is that you, there's always more funding, right? Because the rational move as a venture backed platform is to raise as much capital as you can to take as many like risks as you can, because if you're not taking the risks, your competitors are. And I think this is known as like blitz scaling, that, that book by Reed Hoffman, mm-hmm. but um, this is kind yeah. of the argument in it. And in, implicit in all this like blitz scaling idea is that there's always more capital available. And if you don't, you have to outraise your competitors and then, you know, get there first because there's only going to be really one winner in every in every space. And if you don't win the monopoly, you can't justify your mega valuation. And, you know, this all sounds like we work to me, but, you know, the other companies are still doing it. And if you don't, you do, you do lose. It's true. For a cooperative, our goals are different and our fundraising mechanisms are quite different. You know, if we're successful, if we're sustainable and growing, we don't need the monopoly to to think of ourselves as a success. The bigger we are, the better, sure. But like, we don't have evaluation and LPs to satisfy based on our like chances of winning the monopoly. So we 
don't sell equity. Um, you can be a cooperative and sell 49% of your equity, and that's fine. We haven't sold any equity in, in our company yet. Our only owners are members. So we've raised money through debt structures, basically. So some cooperative loan funds have loaned us a, a good chunk of money, and we've gotten some grants as well because we're doing some interesting work. And then our most, most recently, we've done a crowdfunding campaign that's going pretty well. We're aiming to raise at least a million, and we're, we rounded like 900,000 uh, yesterday. So in the past like three or four weeks, like that campaign has gone successfully enough and that'll be paid back through through like kind of a debt structure. But still, what I've learned about Uber is like in the early days, they got to make all these really cool build versus buy decisions. And the answer was always just hire and build because there's always more capital around. We're not in that situation. So we are going to necessarily move a little bit slower. But if we're putting food on the table for like thousands and thousands of people a year from now, then like we would feel like that is a success and a starting point. Super interesting. And just to run through some quick stats about the state of um, the drivers co-op right now, as of the WeFunder campaign, which I'm pulling these from and maybe you have more up-to-date ones, there's more than 3,000 drivers on the platform, 30,000 users, and it has generated $100,000 of revenue. Is that correct, Jason? That's right. Yeah, we're probably past 3,500 drivers now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's had 2,000 trips, trips completed then. We're closer to 3,500 or 4,000 now. And we continue to do work with like B2B clients. Um, so like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hired us to uh, help with Get Out the Vote. Um, mm-hmm. We have contracts with various organizations and, and governmental bodies to do their like logistics work for them. Um, it turns out municipalities spend more than you would think on uh black car service. And, Mm -hmm. you know, every dollar you spend on a venture backed company, you're paying money, you're paying like the Sand Hill Road tribute, basically, like a little bit of your money is going to the Bay Area and a little bit is going to investors instead of your community. So it's hard to justify for, say, a government to do that. Like, you know, I think um, governments should probably be preferring cooperatives all over because they you know, keep money and resources in the community. To kind of go back to some of the the decision to want to grow sustainably mm-hmm. and not necessarily have to blitz scale. In some markets, what people would say is it's not really a choice. Like whoever's going the fastest kind of sets the pace. And, mm-hmm. and if it's a winner take all market where you have advantages to scale, like network effects or scale economies or whatever, then it becomes increasingly hard as time goes on for people in second, third, fourth place to like even exist. So it's not really about choosing what game you want to play. It's like, well, the game is the market. And if you're in that market, then you kind of have to play by whatever rules are how that market is structured. With rideshare apps, the sort of like, you know, and this is like what people talk about when they talk about competitive moat or whatever, competitive advantage, defensibility. It's all this kind of thing. It's like, basically, it's about market power and relative advantage and how do some companies get it over others. I'm curious how it's been competing Mm -hmm. with these huge companies that are public now. A lot of people think that they have enormous competitive moats. I think specifically for sort of rideshare apps, they have probably a lot less moat than it seems is my guess. And I think it's probably easier to start something kind of structured like this. Like it would be easier to do a, you know, cooperative version of Uber than it would be to do a cooperative version of Facebook is my Mm -hmm. guess. But I'm curious how that's been for you. Like, what do you observe about, you know, there's always a story about a moat or a defensibility, you know, and and what it would be like to try and compete with one of these companies. And then there's the reality and very few people experience the reality because the story scares a lot of people off. And I'm just curious, like what it's been like for y'all. That's a good question. There's a lot here. So, I mean, we're very, very, small. We're not even a blip on anyone else's radar yet in terms of competition. In a year or two, we're hoping to be, but we just launched. It's very early days. Yeah. So there's a few moats that we're running up against. You know, the the apps are really good on the established platforms and they've been 
fighting with each other for a few years. So they're really good at fighting with each other. And we're just caught in the crossfire as this, this small player. So um, especially with like the quote unquote labor shortage going on right now, or maybe like the wage shortage more like we're seeing the, the big players in the space, like pay out more incentives and more bonuses than they ever have. And we, they can take negative unit economics for a long time. Like right. you know, they can remain negative longer than the market can remain not rational or whatever. So we um, can't lose money on every ride. So we're only doing incentives or or rides that make us money and make make everyone involved money. So that makes it a little bit difficult, especially when their apps are just very well tuned. Like, you know, right now Lyft will push you a notification saying if you just take three rides with us in a row and and don't switch between us and Uber, um, we'll give you an extra five bucks like right now. Hmm. And that'll often pay off for Lyft. But if it doesn't, like they can they can deal with it. So we don't have and they also have like teams and teams of um you know, data scientists and and game theorists like figuring out how to gamify the the workplace for for these thousands of workers in New York. Um, and we don't, we obviously don't have that. And it's not clear we want to, right? If we take it to the driver board, like, hey, here's some ways that we, you know, we're not tricking you, but we're not not tricking you. Like, drivers aren't necessarily gonna gonna vote for that. So we're playing, we're playing a different game here. You're absolutely right that like, well, the structure of the market, the structure of like, what people will pay for what services is kind of guiding the structure of the companies that participate in the market. And speaking as a socialist, like I have no illusions that cooperatives are going to end capitalism, like that's not how this this goes. Our goal here is to present an alternative uh, and show that it works and it scales. And it's going to take a larger movement and action to actually change the playing field itself. And, right. you know, that looks like policy that looks like changing the structure of the state and the economy, which isn't going to be done just by proving that there's counterexamples. Like we could, you know, in the, in the limit here, you could move to a commune and prove my commune works, but that's not going to challenge, you know, the capitalist state. So we're trying to do something like that at a larger scale to show, hey, we really, we can actually organize our own problems. Like, I'm not really sure what the capitalists are doing in this equation. Like maybe we could do without that. And over time, as reality shifts, as the as society shifts in the next crisis, like maybe people will be looking around for uh, new ideas the same way in right. cri- crises through the 60s and 70s, people looked around for new ideas and found neoliberalism. And we're still living in the wake of that. After the next crisis, people look around and think like, oh, well, these you know, cooperative platforms seem to do a fine job with all of the negative externalities of these uh, legacy monopoly platforms. Let's do more of that and less of the other ones. Let's make it harder and harder to operate these monopolies and easier and easier to self-organize into cooperatives. So we start to shift over time. That's like our best case scenario. Can you say more about changing the structure of the state and what do you think it evolves to from where it is today? Like I said, I am a socialist and I think to me that means workers own all the value that they create and and we end the system of exploitation where capitalists, you know, gain value through exploiting the labor of workers. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and like what is democratic socialism is a hotly contested question, of course. Like does it look like Sweden? Not to me, because you know, people in Sweden, their phones are their iPhones are made by slave labor, just like mine. Like that's not socialism to me. Socialism is really this the system that that ends the entire hierarchy of exploitation, uh, and that's a really really long term horizon. And I don't think it's necessarily something we just like code our way out of like into, and we don't vote our way into it. It's going to take like a rupture um, in society. Um, that's a it's a big question. It's super interesting. I, I think a lot of this ethos, by the way, of ending exploitation, compensating platform participants, what the value of their contributions are actually worth versus exploiting their labor. I think those are sentiments that are actually shared among a lot of people in the tech community who are building and working in 
everything from startups to the big social media platforms. I recently gave a talk at a very large social media company that I shall not name, where I described how I felt like the future of their company was to be creator owned. And a lot of people actually agreed with me. I think it's just very tough for them to see a path for how we get there. And your sentiments are actually shared by a lot of people in the community. And I think specifically within crypto and Web3, I think a lot of the primitives that have been introduced in that ecosystem actually support the vision and goals that you're outlining, where contributors are compensated proportional to the value that they contribute kind of like that Marx quote of to each according to his contribution from each according to his ability to each according to his contribution. Like that is basically the way that like DAOs and token distributions work for a lot of these crypto native projects. So I think like broadly we're, we're moving in that direction and, and it's interesting to see this kind of sentiment arising from so many different camps. Um, I mean, Adam Smith was against landlordism also, where we all have this idea that um, of what justice means, and and we're just like coming at it from slightly different angles. Yeah. And I I do want to speak to like what socialism means in the milieu I'm familiar with. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of idea that socialism is, you know, when the government does stuff, socialism Mm -hmm. is like free healthcare. Um, Socialism is when uh, no iPhone or authoritarianism or whatever. Um, I think these are all kind of lacking. To me, the, the the core of it is is democracy and an end to exploitation. So there are people in this world who labor and are paid a f- some fraction of the value of their labor, and those people are workers. And there are some people who own stuff and are paid based on other people's labor. And it's not super clear to me why they get this value. But in our society, like not only do they get this value, but they hold the most powerful positions in society. Right. They control the structure of the state and all industry and production. So that's the like laser focus when I talk about socialism. It's just workers get everything they create, the, all the value they create. And we decide, you know, things that are shared, we decide what to do with them democratically. So your workplace is mm-hmm. governed democratically. It's interesting that you say end to exploitation. I often talk about my goals as an investor as kind of the opposite, like basically the same coin, but the opposite side of that coin, where I talk about supporting the idea of freedom and supporting consent. Mm -hmm. Like platform participants should have freedom and they should be consenting to all of the decisions that are made by the platform. And so if we exist in a world in which creators are exercising freedom and they have consent, like what does that look like? What does a platform that's built with those principles in mind look like? Because today I don't think we are there. Creators are not free and they're, mm. they're not consenting. Like unilaterally made decisions are imposed upon them, just like in the ride-sharing world, unilaterally made decisions by these gig platforms are imposed upon the ride-share workers. The way those decisions get imposed, the mechanism to me is really interesting because I think there's this huge, people think of it like uh, sort of black and white, like there's exploitation or there's freedom, Mm -hmm. but there's actually a really, everything is somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. where you have options and some options are better and some options are worse. And oftentimes you take an option that's better in some ways, but like bad in a lot of ways. And there's no other option that could be better. So like for instance, a driver, you know, there's a lot of people who choose to drive for Uber and Lyft presumably people are reasonably rational. They understand what's best for them. They know what they want. It doesn't mean that everything about the terms that Uber and Lyft offer to those drivers are good. Mm. It's just that that's literally the option that's available or some other type of job that they're presumably aware of, but they just don't choose for whatever reason. And um, to me, it kind of comes back to the power thing of like, who needs what? Like who gets to set the terms of the deal? 
And in every single, each transaction or each sort of like negotiation or contract that gets created between as a user of Twitter or Facebook or as a driver on a platform, or even just between two, like people who decide to do start a new business together, there's always some basically just balance of power. Mm. And it's based on resources. It's based on narratives and perceptions. And it's certainly not fair because we're inherit the world as it used to be. And as it used to be is like, white dudes like me like owning a ton of stuff and using that resources to continue owning a ton of stuff and uh it's fascinating how i think even the most sort of like diehard capitalist listeners will appreciate that there can be market failures where there's monopolies and people don't have any good options Mm. and that if you want capitalism to work as a system to actually create freedom for people which is sort of like the ideal that that a lot of the most pro-capitalist people will espouse is like this freedom of getting to choose or whatever. It's like, well, there's no choice at all, really, when, you know, there's these like monopolistic platforms, which, by the way, I think are basically natural monopolies, like the interstate highway system or like the railroads or like there's a lot of systems in society that that do have this natural monopolistic property. And then the tough question is, how do you manage it, basically? And I think I love the idea of basically starting new prototype ways of managing it, recognizing that it's really hard to compete, but that maybe there's other types of actions that could help that in the future get more scale. Yeah. Totally. And by the way, Adam Smith also railed against monopolies right. in terms of how they distorted the market and enabled the capital owners to exploit labor and workers and have more leverage over them. And it's also interesting to note that I think the goal of a lot of VCs and tech industry thinkers is like they're trying to fund monopolies. They're trying to find companies right. that will become monopolies. And so, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I I would love to pose this question to you, Jason, actually, which is, how can people working within the system of technology and Silicon Valley today, like, what should they do? What actions should they take in order to support a fairer world? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. Um, and I agree, like the the dominant theme in technology today is is go get that monopoly. And you can make a lot of money being a contrarian who writes a book saying monopolies are good, actually. Um, right. And competition is for losers. And there's an idea that like maybe a cooperative has to move slowly because it's about consensus. And like, you know, your local grocery cooperative run by anarchists or whatever, like they sit down and they come to consensus about a decision among the, the two dozen people that work there. And I'm sure that works great. And that's going to you know scale to that level. What's going to scale to tens of thousands of workers and then millions of workers is going to look very different. And like, I'm not against hierarchy as an abstract concept. I am into consensual hierarchies, um, like you said. So, you know, we're going, you know, at the driver's cooperative, we elect a board and the board hires a staff. That's uh, the different, you know, it feels day to day, it feels like work because it's a job. And that's, that's how labor is organized on this planet. The difference is that you're electing your leaders rather than having them elected by shareholders who just show up to, to vote for their interests every year. So it's, it's um, not everyone gets their way all the time because, because that's life. We just have like consensual practices built in because that's how democracy is implemented as a practice. So taking this idea, like what should technologists do? I w- I've written about this in my my Substack a bit, kind of mirroring my journey. And my big lesson was um, go embed yourself with these actual problems, these actual struggles that workers are engaging in today and learn from them because the actual knowledge comes from the leaves of the organization, from like the leaves of the uh, network. So find out what is happening like on the ground as close to the like real issues as possible and embed yourself in them and then like try and make them better. So like technologists have these special skills that are really amazing and we can build things that like scale to millions and billions of people. We it's kind of on rails to use those skills to make more money, to to build more profit, to win more engagement on people's phones. Um, it's not so on rails to like 
actually find issues addressed, like affecting real people and materially like impacting people's lives and then solve them like close to the the problem. Because like people have all kinds of problems in their lives. We can't solve them in the abstract. We can sell more ads in the abstract. Like it's, it's pretty clear how to measure that and how to, how to improve that, you know, actually getting involved in like organizing a workplace that is inherently democratic. Like it's not going to be a purely algorithmic improvement or something. We're talking about blockchain a little bit, I guess. Um, you know, I think there's really promising ideas there in Web3 and with DAOs, especially as we scale from small cooperatives of thousands of people up to cooperatives of cooperatives, federations of cooperatives that uh, encapsulate the work of millions and millions of people. So I think there's something there. But like as technologists, uh, I think we need to get like really, really down and dirty with these problems. And then the way that manifested for me is to like, instead of thinking, what is the tech that can solve people's problems? It's to find people who have problems and are have, the, have done the hard part already, which is organizing themselves to gather resources to solve these problems and then embedding myself in that struggle and then using my skills to like help advance it. I think what technologists can do, especially founders and people building startups, is build in the idea of user ownership from day one in deciding how to capitalize the company. Mm. Um, so in other words, don't just raise from large institutional venture capitalists, raise from creators, angel investors, the people who are going to be using your product day to day, and not only allow them to invest, which I think is limited because these types of people are typically limited in terms of the capital that they have available to them, but make them advisors, like give them equity, allow them to earn equity over time, potentially through different milestones that they might accomplish. And I've seen a trend in this direction and I'm trying to push for it, but I think founders like your, your cap table is a reflection of the change that you want to make in the world. Yep. Like I just want people to know that and to remember that because it's, it's not just getting money into the bank account it's your cap table is a statement of your values yeah. and then i think like beyond that by the way i think equity is a very flawed tool for distributing value to a large number of stakeholders i think exploration around crypto and how to build crypto networks that ultimately then exit to their community and distribute tokens to their community and to all of their participants i think that's really exciting and promising to me yeah, you said exit to community there, which I think is a really uh, interesting idea that I'm seeing pop up more and more in the cooperative space. If y'all have talked about it before, well, it's a um, an idea that like instead of going through your exit through IPO or more likely being acquired by you know one of the monopolies or something, maybe when you start a new venture, uh, your goal should be to uh, eventually distribute ownership of it to the people, to its stakeholders, to its users, its community, whoever that might be. I think that's a, a really powerful idea. Um, trying to balance like the realities of needing capital to get off the ground with the idea that as you said, eventually the owners or the, the equity of in, in a corporation should reflect who actually hold stake in it and who the values that they want to see in the world. So I, I buy that. Um, my criticism of, of Web3 is, I guess, always that it's very early. Yeah, I've probably griped to you about this before, yeah. Lee, but like I have, a, you know, we have very operational issues uh, in the cooperatives today about getting drivers on the road, improving the technology. And when I talk to venture capitalists, you know, they're very excited by this idea but um, they can't really invest in a debt structure because that's not what their LPs are looking for. They want like the venture mm -hmm. profile of risk and reward, but they're you know able to speculate on DAOs because DAOs are kind of new and shiny enough that it's not totally clear like, right. where, where they sit between debt and equity and ownership and whatnot. I was about um, to say, it's interesting how fast they can get flexible when it comes to something like <laughs> investing in a crypto token versus investing in a collective, but maybe that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> totally, because there is this possibility of speculation and massive reward there, even if it's like super not under 
understood. Right. Yeah. So I, it's something I'm definitely fascinated by, but I, I am, it's not yet something that's in the hands of like regular people. I would love like if four years from now, like in our app, there's a little web three client, like a little micro MetaMask running that lets you, you know, vote your tokens or something. That would be super cool. It's, it's just hard to, to be the first um, end user token experience when like most of the users of like web three stuff right now are they're, like still very early on the early adopter curve. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for sure, it's always good to remember at what stage of technology adoption we're in. And I do acknowledge that I think a lot of the Web3 tools are too early and not intuitive to be used by the types of workers who would be driving for, for instance, a rideshare platform or working on a gig platform. And I definitely want to encourage the founders who are listening to this because we have a lot of builders and operators um, in our audience to remember the kind of world impact that they can have when they decide what they want to work on. We can build lots of products that make our lives incrementally better in Silicon Valley, or we can do something that's really going to impact the ability for millions of people around the world to have a livelihood at all. Yeah, I I hope people make advances in making the tools a lot easier to use and, and simple enough such that anyone, even an immigrant with limited English skills or technology skills can use them. Yeah, it's not revolutionary unless it's for everyone. Jason, do you have any book recommendations or like resources that you've found particularly enlightening and illuminating as you've sort of navigated this new territory of cooperatives, um, socialism, the ideas of like the history of the labor movement and, and how workers can have leverage. Like, are there particularly great books or podcasts or anything that you would recommend for people who want to explore these topics further? So there have been, this has been a big change in my life over the past five years as I've gone from being kind of a believer to some degree in the capitalist uh, hegemony to pretty much a full-time critic of it. So things that helped me along the way were, you know, I, I love science fiction. So the works of Ursula K. Le Guin are pretty influential, especially The Dispossessed, which there's a limit to how useful it is to imagine like completely different worlds or utopias, like, of, you know, what it looks like after the revolution, because, you know, that's that's kind of just idealism. But it's still inspiring in like the realm of sci-fi to see like, well, what does a society that like minimizes hierarchy look like? And Le Guin is, is excellent at writing about that. Similarly, in the, the sci-fi world, um, one of Le Guin's students, Kim Stanley Robinson, is uh, an author I like a lot. His new book, Ministry for the Future, is a more hopeful than most uh, portrayal of what climate collapse looks like and what the masses can do about it. Um, so his work generally, he's, he's a member of DSA as well. I think his his like vision is is mostly pretty cool um, and to see like what um, a socialist future looks like in like the sci-fi context like always kind of keeps me motivated there have been a few things that i've read that helped me just understand like to place technology in the development of society historically i guess um this book inventing the future who's that by uh inventing the future post-capitalism in a world without work by nick cernak and alex williams was one of the first things i read when i joined the left or became a socialist and um you know, this helped me embrace like progress as a leftist. There's this false narrative that capitalists are very pro-innovation and, and and progress, and like socialists just want to say no to things or or like stop progress or something. And you know, they're luddites. That's a term I used to, you know, growing up. I was like, oh, being a luddite is the worst thing you could be, right? You you can't be anti-technology. And then I actually learned what 
the, what that word means and what where the Luddites come from came from and why they loved smashing machinery. It was and it, they're actually a hundred percent correct. Um, that was like a, a correct analysis instead of actions by Luddites. Anyway, finding communities on the left that embrace technology and progress has been super helpful to me. What so, was the Luddite story? Yeah, so um, you know these people who worked, I think, in a mill. The owner of the mill some guy who just had recently decided he owned it basically over the past few centuries it went from being a community thing to like somebody owns it and other people labor for it and and get told what to do with by a boss um, you know, new new kinds of machinery were coming down to make the mill more productive, but they actually made the job harder and longer and accrued no value whatsoever to the worker. So and like, you know, kind of like displaced their jobs. And there was just no part of the bargain that was good for like most people besides the owners. Um, right. So they ganged up together and smashed the machinery. And like, that's what we should do with bad technology. We should embrace good technology that that helps most people. And we should challenge technology that helps a small elite of people at the expense of most everyone else. So like that story, I, you know, now identify with. And yeah, like there, there are actually lots and lots of leftists who study the works of like cyberneticists like Stafford Beard, um, or um, push forward to demands like universal basic income, or say automation is good, because actually, we do want to stop toiling and toil is this thing that has affected humans for 1000s of years, and we want to end it. That's the kind of future I can embrace. And uh, yeah, so this book inventing the future has a great analysis of that, as well as an analysis of how we got here. So I, I mentioned before, like neoliberalism, this this plague upon our planet for the past half century came from uh, you know a series of crises one of the things socialists kind of argue is that capitalism inherently uh, causes these crises there's there's a cyclical crisis built into the system so in these crises that happen every once in a while like the ideas that used to work don't work anymore so people look for the new ones and neoliberalism was one that worked that seemed promising so we embraced it and 50 years on we have austerity and and like kind of a slowing of progress so understanding that kind of crisis driven thing has uh, been helpful for me I'll give like one final final thought on um, books that I enjoy or thinkers I think uh, I really enjoy. Um, there's a professor uh, formerly at the New School, uh, Richard Wolff, who is a old school Marxist economist, has, like teaches heterodox economics uh, in, in academia about Marxism. And he he's a big advocate of cooperatives. He thinks that the 21st century vision of socialism heavily relies upon building cooperatives. Uh, so he has a number of books about that, like Democracy at Work, that kind of just lays out the case like, you know, why do you have a boss? Why does why is there an absentee shareholder that takes a, a portion of your your value? What if that wasn't the case? And like, how realistic is that? And, and what would that look like? So he's very, very well grounded, right? I think he's very non-utopian is thinking in his arguments. So uh, he also puts out like a daily YouTube video that I, I watch quite often. It's pretty good. So yeah, Richard Wolf is a smart guy. And I'm just going to add one recommendation to that list, which is Jason's own Substack newsletter, which yeah. I've binge read and is super insightful and thought provoking. It's venturecommune.substack.com. So check that out, everyone. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, Jason, for being here. It's always so thought provoking when we chat. And so I always really enjoy speaking to you. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's nice to talk to people who are coming at the same problems from from very different angles and see what overlaps and what doesn't. So this has been great. Thank you. Thank you.